all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Supplementary on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Good to be with you this morning. We're taking your calls during this hour concerning any kind of health issues or topics that you would like to discuss or uh, maybe take a stab at answering those questions. It could be about anything. Maybe it's a new medication that you're taking, a new diagnosis, maybe some symptoms that you just quite haven't got a, uh, a hold on yet. We'd be glad to try to answer those questions this morning. You can reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one 672 7464 Or if you're not able to call, please send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's staying safe out there. I know most everybody's probably keeping up with the increased COVID-19 numbers that we're seeing in the state and nation. Uh, certainly, it, this is not over by any means. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that are sick. I know in our hospital, we're, we're seeing... Uh, you know, increased numbers, uh, total numbers of patients. Uh, in fact, we had uh, the most we've ever had at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Uh, so it's it's still a huge issue, uh, even though you may not be affected by it or you may not uh, feel like you're at risk. Uh, certainly, I would hope everybody is taking steps to protect everyone else. I've said this before on Southern Remedy, Uh, And I I firmly believe that one of Mississippi's strengths is its people and its people's adherence to uh, uh, to protecting one another uh, and where we live. And one of the best ways you could do that is wearing those masks out there. And a lot of people have been complaining about it. Uh, Certainly you can do your part to do that and to space uh, distance, uh, distance yourself out as much as possible from others when you're in places, uh, particularly indoors. Uh, but also outdoors when you uh, can't move out. So please do that. A lot of good research. I know there's a lot of stuff out there like there usually is with everything, but a lot of misinformation about masks harming you, a lot of misinformation about they don't work, they do work. I encourage you to wear them. I'm wearing them when I'm around other people. Um, So please, please do that uh, when you're out and about. Uh, just wanted to remind everybody about that. One of our best ways that we can ensure that we move into the fall and have some semblance of some activities getting back to normal is to do those types of things and to try to protect yourself and uh, and others from the spread of COVID-19. So uh, the number to call this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 877 Sorry, one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I think we have a first caller on the line. I didn't quite get the first name there, but uh, sorry, Doctor Jimmy, he dropped off. Maybe he'll give us a call back. It was Huel oh, okay. from Hattiesburg. Call us back. Some, sometimes that happens. We apologize, but uh, 
we, you know, so, something may happen on either end of our conversation. So please call back uh, with our first uh, caller. Kevin, I think you had a question about uh, treatment of COVID, right? Yeah, the I've, I'm, you know, I've been hearing that uh, sort of the twin research paths of treatment uh, for COVID and also a vaccine for COVID-19. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, I guess treatment is taking care of you after you get the disease where vaccine is trying to prevent you from getting it uh, at, at the first. But maybe is one more important than the other or just talk about kind of those twin research paths a little bit. Kevin, you outlined that perfectly. You get your honorary MD degree for the day for that. Um, so, yeah, so treatment and prevention are two separate sides of the coin on disease, um, on dealing with any chronic disease that you have. So, so the first thing, prevention. There's several different ways to do that. I just mentioned some that everybody can do. Everybody has the power. I know a lot of people feel powerless. This is something you can do. Uh, to prevent that transmission. So, uh, but uh, vaccination is a, is really utilizing the body's own immune system that it's designed for to recognize foreign substances, to make antibodies against those substances, and then to uh, encourage the body's own immune system to do that. It's a very natural way to do that. We are exposed to thousands of different things from a week to week basis that our body uh, recognizes as something in the past that we've had, or if it's something even new and you come down with it and you're sick with it, your body tries to mount up a defense for future infection. So vaccinations is one way to try to do that. And it's not just about individuals either. It's about populations. So how things travel through populations, we know that this virus is a little bit more infectious than uh, than influenza, than the common uh, than the seasonal flu that we normally see. Uh, so you have to be a little bit more aggressive about that. It also has to do with how easily the virus is transmitted from person to person uh, once somebody gets it. Uh, so all those things are taken into into account to try to prevent it. Now, what happens when you get the virus? What what can you do at that point? And right now we're pretty limited, but if you think about it, we're pretty limited with some other viruses. I'll give you a couple that are out there that don't have a specific treatment for the virus itself. Zika is one. Zika is a virus that is uh, endemic right now in the in the Caribbean and uh, and um, Central America. Can cause some birth defects, particularly in women who get this or men who transmit it uh, to women. So that does not have a specific treatment to that virus. Uh, West Nile is another one. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have a treatment for that individual virus. So when you get these types of viruses where we don't have a specific treatment, then you have to treat sort of the symptoms downstream of what they cause. Now, we do have a promising drug that's being looked at in a number of trials. There's been a couple smaller numbers. Jury's still out uh, finally on that. Remdesivir. Uh, is a medication that was developed against Ebola in Africa. Uh, was not very affected, effective against uh, Ebola in people who get it. And again, this is not, you don't take this to prevent getting it. You take it after you get it. And it seems to have its, its most effects in decreasing some of the effects of COVID-19 in those who already have it and who are sicker. So these would be people in the hospital, probably in the ICU setting, that's where most of the research is going into right now. A lot of stuff out there, again, a lot of misinformation about different things. Uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine has been uh, 
um, has been looked at in the past um, and, and is continuing to be looked at as a possibility. And again, really lots of different research on that. Now, after somebody gets sick, you really try to treat what's going on with them so that there's a, uh, a robust uh, inflammatory response to the virus in some people and uh, steroids uh, to quiet that process down uh, have been looked at and have been pretty successful in individuals who have moderate to severe symptoms. So that's hospitalized patients and probably in the ICU. So uh, not a whole lot you can do supportive therapy. That just means we're looking at everything that this virus is doing and trying to support the body while it gets over that. So great question. That's one everybody always uh, ask. I think we have our caller back on the line. I'm going to try to get his name right. Huell uh, from Hattiesburg. Good morning, Huell. Hey, good morning. Thank you. Uh, this is kind of along the same lines there. I'm a pediatric dentist here in Hattiesburg and uh, born proud in 1957. And I was uh, been trying to get some information on would it be advantageous for me to have an MMR vaccine series? Um, so age-wise, yeah, that's that's one of those ages where it probably would be, uh, I would think it would probably be advantageous for you to get that just because of waning immunity and what was what you were exposed to during that time. Um, immunity to measles, mumps, and rubella, particularly measles, can wane over time, and you really depend on your population. As a, as a dentist, as a pediatric dentist, I think you're probably in one of those special groups that that is going to be a little bit at more risk for giving it to somebody else uh, right. if you should get it. And we know we have little pockets of, of measles that pops up in our population. The problem with that heel is probably going to be getting convincing your insurance to pay for it. So I would check that first and just sort of see. But if you want to go ahead and foot the bill, it probably if I were you, I would probably look into getting it just because, again, like you said, of your age with waning immunity over time, even if you had measles in the past. Uh, the immune system doesn't remember that necessarily for a lifetime. Uh, and then also for the special population that you're looking at day in and day out. Measles is very, very contagious. If somebody has it and they step into a room for five minutes, even less time than that, potentially everybody in that room can get exposed to measles. It's much more contagious than COVID, flu, a lot of other viruses. So uh, it is, it's something that we need to take serious, and that's why vaccination is one of the best ways to prevent that. Well, I, I thought that would probably be better to do that than going to the trouble of having titers done. It just might as well. There's no disadvantage to having the vaccine. There's really no side effects or anything, I presume. Yeah, yeah. well, there's, you know, there's side effects with every, every vaccine, yeah, potential but, side I mean, effects. Not, not, but, not, a significant, not a significant. Right. Right. Most people have a little bit of a low grade fever with that one or maybe some redness at the site of, uh, of injection. Uh, and again, that's just the body's way of saying, hey, we recognize this as foreign. We're going to produce some of the same inflammatory things we would uh, if you got, you know, if you were infected with it. Uh, so it's meaning that the immune system is working like it should. Titers, you mentioned, and that's really just checking for antibodies for everybody else out there that's not familiar with that term. Uh, it tends to be more expensive, and it's not always 100% accurate. So it's probably easier just to get the MMR vaccine. Would it be a, a two-injection uh, two series? Uh, no, in your case, it's probably just one. Um, okay. That, uh, yeah, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be more than that. Well, I guess also I was curious about it, too, since uh, some fleeting evidence out there about rubella, uh, having a good rubella titer might be 
helpful in our current right. situation. Right, and I focused on measles, but you're right. Uh, rubella is another one that sort of wanes with time. Again, uh, young kids and um, and pregnant women are the two you know categories. If you're in the healthcare industry, a lot of places will test a rubella uh, titer when you come in. So a lot of people get that uh, you know in higher risk populations. But um, all those, all three, that measles, mumps, and rubella mumps is not a big one that we worry about too much. But that was lumped in there, you know, because they—that's sort of the way the vaccine was made. So that's those are all three of those are together in the vaccine. Well, good. Thank you so much. I want to say I've, I've always enjoyed your programming and uh, appreciate what you do at UMFA. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is something on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of healthcare issue that you might have this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Liz on the road. Good morning, Liz. Thank you for calling this morning. Good morning. Good morning. My question is about the uh, pneumonia vac uh, shot. The vaccine. I'm not sure if it's a vaccine or just a shot. You know, there there is. I believe there is an updated version where you get two shots. Possibly, I had one probably 15 years ago, but um, I'm in my mid-70s, so I just wondered if this would be something that would be a good thing for me to do at this time. Sure. Uh, Liz, pneumonia vaccines are are pneumococcal. That's the the bacteria that causes uh, pneumonia and a couple of other conditions, including meningitis. So that's what the vaccine is, is geared towards. And there's different, what we call serotypes of pneumococcus, uh, different, uh, I guess you could say it's in the same family. These are just sort of brothers and sisters within the same family of pneumococcus. Uh, there are two major vaccines. There's a, a pneumococcal vaccine 13. Uh, so that's 13 uh, uh, is given to kids. And there's a series for that. And then several years ago, uh, there was a lot of interest in whether or not giving that to adults in addition to the pneumococcal 23 vaccine that most adults were getting at age 65. If you added the 13 to it, did you get any extra benefit? So initially they thought that you did, 
in some of the smaller studies, they added it to the series. So you would get one at 65 and one six to 12 months later, uh, the other one. So 13 first and then 23 or vice versa. But they really didn't see much benefit in the general population for that. So they've gone back now to just the single vaccine at age 65 for the general population. If you do have other um, medical conditions that put you at risk for getting pneumococcal disease, like any type of chronic lung disease, asthma, COPD, uh, diabetes, that's one that uh, can cause you to be at risk for that, then there is some recommendations around that. So I'd check with your physician if you have any of those conditions. But age alone, if you got the PCV23 vaccine when you were 65, you probably don't need to get the 13 at this point. Um, but that's, you know, about every five years they look at this. And the reason why it changes, everybody's like, why are we changing things again? Uh, is really the evidence of, behind it. So once we introduced the, the 13 to the 23 in those age 65 and older, then we had thousands and thousands of patients that we could track and then see in retrospect or prospectively as time went on, it wasn't really that protective. So all that to say, if you got the 23, you're probably good for right now until more evidence says otherwise or until another vaccine comes up. Okay. I think I got that one when I was about 60 as opposed to 65. Then you're, that, that should be fine. That should be fine. I should still be fine. Okay. That answers my question. Thanks so much. All right, Liz. Thank you for calling. Let's go to Bill in Raymond. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. How are you, Dr. Stewart? Good. Thank you for calling. Yes. Uh, I was wondering if you would comment on the research that has been done by uh, Dr. Reed Hogan. I think Dr. John Studdard, the pulmonologist, uh, helped him with that study where he treats uh, COVID-19 with two very cheap drugs. Are you, are you aware of that study? So there are, there are multiple ones out there. I'm not, I know Reed Hogan, uh, he's a, a gastroenterologist in Jackson. Uh, so right. there are multiple ones out there. Uh, UMC, we're up to about 15 to 20 different trials uh, looking at different things. Uh, some of the early uh, trials looked at two medications who were, you may be, uh, I'm not sure exactly what you were alluding to, but hydroxychloroquine and then azithromycin were two that were looked at. Unfortunately, uh, act, the one actually, go, act, actually, go it's uh, it's two drugs. One is a GI drug, and the other is, I think, like a antihistamine, very cheap. And uh, the the thing about it is, it supposedly stops the cytokine uh, storm that is so devastating to the patient's lungs and causing inflammation. Uh, uh, I don't know whether, you know, you, you really don't know what to trust these days in terms of what's out there on the web, but uh, there was a, a nice article uh, that my wife showed me last night where they've had good success in, uh, in preventing that cytokine storm in patients uh, treated by Dr. Stutter. Yeah, and, and so... So that's exactly what some of these trials are looking at is our medications, particularly those that are used in situations 
where uh, you're trying to quiet the immune system down, autoimmune diseases being the biggest category. And it sounds almost counterintuitive. You know, people think, well, you need a really robust uh, immune system and immune response to fight off COVID. Um, it can actually, you know, it, it, actually the sickest patients is just the opposite. Their immune system is so geared up that it makes a lot of these, you mentioned cytokines, that's just the fancy fancy term for these substances that our body produces uh, to cause inflammation. And that is the damage that's being done, not just in the lungs, but everywhere, kidneys, brain, heart. Uh, a lot of patients are developing uh, heart failure symptoms just because of this, as you put it, cytokine storm is a very accurate description of it. So a lot of these studies are looking at individual medications or combinations of medications that target that and then um, um, to sort of turn that off. Now, I wouldn't go out there and use, you know, certainly you need to look at how they're being used because a lot of the trials that are done are done in very specific situations. Somebody with COVID who has very, very severe symptoms and you wouldn't extrapolate that to the rest of the uh, rest of the community like, OK, you're COVID positive. We're going to put you on this medication. You really need to study that in large numbers to make sure that you don't you're not going to put somebody on something that have a lot of negative side effects from it. So and a lot of those immune system medications have a lot of side effects. Um, so okay. bottom line is. If you're interested in something like that, there are even studies. Uh, you, our, 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 uh, um, our institution is looking at uh, sort, sort of the, the baseline population. Uh, so we're one of uh, uh, a number of sites are looking at how many people in the community have had this. So we're doing some antibody testing. So there's a ton of stuff out there. This is the way you treat something long term, though. You gather the evidence. You put it in a format in a clinical trial and you apply that. Anecdotal evidence is just that. It's anecdotal and it may have worked on one person, but it's very dangerous to extrapolate that to large groups of people. But this is the way that we train. This is the way that we do things. I appreciate that. All right. That, yeah, thank you for calling. And, and thanks for that uh, reminder, too. Like if, if anybody is interested in any of those clinical trials, uh, there's a lot of opportunity right now with doing that. And uh, I know our institution is really trying to to accommodate that, to learn more. This is this is what we do. This is uh, this is medicine at, a, at an institution. Uh, what we all should be doing is learning more as things happen. It is frustrating at times because of changes and because of limited information. And sometimes that information changes as we get more of the information and evidence. But that's the kind of thing that uh, is going to is going to fight this and is going to be most applicable to uh, to getting us back to a, a situation where we can have our normal lives. This is uh, Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy. The number to call if you have a question is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 Got a couple of emails here, and one in particular was talking about um, some uh, risk from cancer. So the question is, how does the environmental impacts of our area affect cancer rates in southern Mississippi? I'm 30 years old and three of my peers from high school have passed away from breast cancer and brain tumors. Is there any information that you can share on this subject? Uh, so, I, first of all, sorry to hear that. Uh, that is traumatic uh, by any means. I know I've had several people 
uh, either that, that I grew up with that have had cancer at an early age. And when you start to see clusters of people, particularly younger people that develop cancers, it does raise some eyebrows about, okay, what's going on here? Uh, why are, is this population getting potentially more cancer than, than others? So there's really, you know, cancer risk de depends on a couple of different things. The three most important things and categories are age, genetics, and exposure. So those three things really drive our risk for cancer. As we get older, our cells, particularly those cells that uh, are turn, have a faster turnover, like so your skin, uh, your GI tract, uh, your lungs, those cells, uh, as we age, have more and more of a, of a predisposition to turn into a cancerous cell, a, a cell that's unregulated in how it uh, it does its normal functions and it sort of goes rogue. Um, so as we age, we know that as you age, your, your chance of getting cancer goes higher and higher. The second thing is genetics. So there's a lot of cancers out there um, that are genetic in nature. In other words, your genes are predispos predisposed to, uh, to put you at risk for that. And the best way to determine that is not necessarily through genetic testing. It's a, it's a family history. There are some great genetic tests out there for, for cancer, but um, really just, a, just taking that history and asking other people, hey, has anybody ever had cancer in our family? And sort of getting that information, you may find out that you've got three cousins who had breast cancer, uh, then that may put you at a higher risk. And then the third thing is environmental effects. So there are um, there are a number of things that we come into contact with our environment. If you think about the sun, is one that you know comes to mind for for skin cancer. So the more sun exposure you have, uh, that is that can put you at risk uh, throughout your lifetime, particularly as you get older for getting those kinds of cancers. Smoking, huge cancer risk. We know that excess alcohol. All these things really contribute to, uh, you know, to our environment. Having certain chronic illnesses can do that, too. We know that in individuals who have chronic inflammation uh, from whatever chronic illness that they have, that those individuals are going to be at risk for cancer down the road. Our diet, what we eat, um, if you have a lot of intake of, of processed meats, salty meats, um, all those things, overly cooked meats with charred, uh, you know, charred, uh, uh, food particles, all those things can put us at risk for developing cancer. Obesity in our state is a huge risk factor. Inactivity is another one. Uh, all these things, uh, can, can certainly contribute. Now, if you have an individual and you really can't figure out exactly why they're having uh, cancer or, or population, I should say, and you can't figure out why they're having cancer, then I think you do need to concentrate on that environmental one. And like, what are the commonalities of every one of these people? Is it something that they're coming into contact with uh, the, in buildings that they were in or perhaps what they're eating or drinking on a regular basis? So all of that epidemiologists, that's what they do to try to figure that out. I would bring that to the attention of your local healthcare officials, and they can sort of uh, push that up the ladder. There's also population health is a whole uh, area and specialty of medicine that looks at those kinds of things. So 
you know, I, you can't say for certain that those individuals may have been exposed to something else, but it really does, does depend on those three things. Some of those are modifiable. You can change and some you can't. Obviously, we can't change aging. We can't change our genetics. Uh, but the environmental piece, we can. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever it is, we're here to help. Find out what we're all about and subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Sunny Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about your health care. Or maybe it's somebody else's. Maybe it's something that just sort of popped into your head. We encourage you to call today. we got plenty of time to answer your calls on this hour. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 If you're not able to call, please send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. In fact, if you uh, want to check out some of our archive programs, we do provide that for you on our website. The website is mpbonline.org. Just search for Southern Remedy, and you can check out our past programs that have already aired. Uh, we also, you know, it's, it's sometimes we realize that a lot of people are not going to be able to listen to the entire program. You may come in a little bit late and want to go back and check things out. That's the way you can do that. Uh, you can also download that on your phone, and uh, if you're out and about, uh, you can uh, listen to it. Uh, so mpbonline.org, check that out. Try to get all of our information out to you in as many formats as we can, uh, so uh, just to try to, to uh, reach you in the ways that, uh, that you may not be aware that, that we can reach you. Got a question about uh, sun safety. Uh, we've done this uh multiple times, but uh, can't say enough about it because we live in the South. We have a lot of, of risk. We're just talking about cancer risk, uh, but sunburns, that's another one too. And we uh, see people in the hospital and the ERs uh, quite frequently during this time of year uh, who have gotten out in the sun and have gotten burned and uh, it's contributed to dehydration and heat exhaustion and heat stroke. So some of the things to watch out for, if you have a severe sunburn or sun poisoning, you can have symptoms like redness in the skin or blistering, pain or tingling in the skin is another symptom that you might have uh, sun poisoning. Swelling in that area, particularly those areas that are at right angles to the sun, so arms, shoulders, uh, headache, fever and chills, uh, nausea, dizziness, dehydration. And dehydration really would be things like a fast heart rate, 
dizziness or lightheadedness, when, particularly when you stand up uh, from sitting down. So immediately you should get out of the sun if you have any of these. Don't try to just sit out there and bake. I see people or hear people doing this all the time. They're like, yeah, I'm sunburned. I'm just going to stay out of here and just tough it out. Not a smart thing to do, particularly if you're going to be out in the sun for long periods uh, over a few days. Uh, you can take a cool, not a cold shower or bath and apply cold or cool, uh, sorry, cool compresses to the area. The reason uh, why you don't need to do it really, really cold is you can actually have a thermal injury to the skin beyond what you already have. Uh, so the, the sun does its damage through UV radiation, UVA and B light uh, that really just uh, kills those cells uh, uh, on the skin and causes a thermal in injury to it. If you put a really cold, you're not going to be able to feel that as much. It's going to feel pretty good, but then you can freeze those cells and cause further damage. So you don't want it to be too cold. Uh, so cool is, is okay. And again, cool is just to decrease the temperature of the skin and perhaps the entire body if you're, if you're um, febrile. Drinking extra fluids for a few days does help. Water is probably the thing I would suggest most often. I know a lot of people use Gatorade, Powerade, those kinds of things. Pedialyte is not intended to be a rehydration drink for, um, for sun exposure and for dehydration. It's more of the dehydration that you get from a GI distress, and really it's for kids and young kids. So uh, I've gotten that from time to time. It's like, hey, can I just do Pedialyte uh, instead of all these other things? But once you get out of the sun, water is fine to do that. And uh, don't overestimate how much you're losing from your skin, because once you burn that skin, that protective layer that holds all the water in our body goes away and it becomes much more porous. Um, other things that you can do, uh, ibuprofen and acetaminophen or Tylenol, that can help with the pain. Ibuprofen has a little bit of anti-inflammatory uh, component to it. Uh, putting things on the skin, there's tons of stuff uh, that's out there uh, that you can put on. Aloe vera gel or actually aloe vera from the plant is fine or another moisturizer. I would uh, stay away from a lot of the moisturizers that have alcohol in them because once you put it on there it's going to feel good for a while but it dries the skin out and then covering up those sunburn areas when going back outside so if you're sunburned put on a long sleeve shirt make sure you got a hat on protect those areas and if you go back out in the sun wear sunscreen um, at, at least uh, an spf sun protection factor of 30. Uh, remember to reapply that uh, at least every two hours and after you've been sweating or in the water for long periods of time. And then timing has everything to do with it too. I'm a fly fisherman. I love 10 to two on my forward and back cast, but those are also the two numbers to remember about sun exposure because between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. is gonna be your most intense part of the day as far as UV rays. So uh, wear the sunglasses, a hat, protective clothing, uh, and just remember some of those things when you go out in the sun. All right, we've got another caller on the line. I believe it's uh, Ken from uh, Brookhaven. Yes, I was going to see what the available treatments for uh, pulmonary AV malformation. Pulmonary AV malformation. So uh, is that something that you have or somebody else has? Well, it's something that I have. Yeah. So, uh, so an AV malformation is arteriovenous. So that means that normally your arteries don't, correct, collect, don't connect directly to your veins. They're, they have capillaries in between. Uh, 
And the blood flow, once it goes from an artery, which is usually a high pressure system, to a vein, which is a low pressure system, has all this network of capillaries to sort of spread out in, and then that drains into the veins in that low pressure system. If you connect those two things together, and uh, this is actually done medical or surgically in uh, some patients, particularly those who have dialysis. So they'll actually put those two together, a large artery and a large vein. And uh, you may have seen people that got this, it sort of balloons up in their arm. And that's because that high pressure system from the artery meets that low pressure system in the vein. The vein walls are very thin, arterial walls are very muscular, and the vein would sort of blow up. And it's useful in dialysis patients, not so useful in other situations. Uh, in the lungs, if you have that situation, you can be predisposed to bleed in the lungs. And there are some genetic inheritable conditions where you can have this in the lungs, in the liver, uh, in the GI tract, and it can predispose you to bleed in those areas. Typically, it depends on how many you have and where they are. The our interventional pulmonologists, these are lung doctors who specialize in doing things in the lung, uh, they can go in and actually cauterize those areas in some instances to decrease your risk of bleeding. So if it's a very large AV malformation in your lungs, uh, they may not be able to do that quite as much. But if it's multiple small ones, they, they may be able to do that. And then cardiothoracic surgeons are really the other group that can do more extensive surgeries to try to fix those things. They can be risky at times. Surgery is not always the, uh, the thing that you want to do to correct that. But uh, those are the two groups of people that you probably need to see if you have that. They're going to be doing all kinds of fancy tests that you have probably already had, Ken, uh, like a, a CT scan, maybe even an MRI with contrast to look at those areas and see what your risk is. Yeah, they've looked at that, and since it's on such a, it's not a normal, it's kind of a, a unique thing. Uh, right. Is there anybody in Mississippi, any doctor that specializes in that? Um, so, yeah, the, the pulmonary, the interventional pulmonologist is probably your best bet, I would say, and they may point you in a different direction. But that's that's who I probably would uh, that's who I probably would see. So the only treatment would be surgery. Yeah, either surgery or an intervention where they go into the lung itself through the uh, through the air passages, um, but also um, you know through the through the arteries or veins. Sometimes they can do that too. It just depends on where it is. But they would be the people that would know that the best. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Sundrift on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about any kind of health care issues that you might have. Great questions today. I'll I sort of like a variety of things. It's uh, nice to hear that and know that uh, we're able to point people in some directions. Not able to answer every question all the way through, but can certainly try to point you in the right direction where you need to go. I think we've got uh, Barbara on the line, and uh, I'm not sure where she's from. But Barbara, uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, I'm calling about what's the best thing you can do if you got high triglycerides, and can it cause health problems? And how high is too high? Yeah, so uh, triglycerides are one of the components of fats in our blood. And so if you get a lipid panel or cholesterol profile, it's going to have a number of things on there. It's going to have an HDL, an LDL, of course, the total cholesterol, and triglycerides. There may be a couple other components. Some some, uh, doctors get a lot more specific about that. But the main ones to, uh, to remember and the ones that have the most negative effects on your body and positive are the HDL and the LDL. And the way I remember this, or at least I, I tell patients, is HDL, think healthy. So the, the higher, the better. And LDL is lousy. So the, the lower that, the better. Uh, so those are the two main components. And LDL is one of the biggest um, the biggest risk factors for uh, cardiovascular disease and stroke. Uh, so uh, that's the one that you want to get down. And it, you have to plug them in these days into a risk calculator to really look at your total risk and then make decisions on whether or not you need a medication to bring it down. Now, triglycerides are less of a problem unless they're over about 500. So if it's 500 and greater, there are some genetic predispositions that can put you at risk. Not necessarily, you can be at risk for having uh, blockage of arteries, but you can also be at risk for other things like pancreatitis uh, and, and a couple of other uh, medical conditions. So, but if it's not, then there, there may be a couple of things you can do to get it down. There is a, uh, there is fish oil has been looked at and uh, it, you have to get the right combination of, of uh, fatty acids in fish oil, but if you take fish oil, you can decrease your, um, your triglycerides. The biggest thing to get them down is to, um, uh, is to limit the amount of, of fatty acids in, in your diet. So a lot of fatty foods, you don't want to, you know, want to try to decrease those as much as possible. Uh, but fish oil over the counter, just check with your pharmacist about which one would be best, and you might want to try that. You don't want to take too much of it. So over about two to three grams a day, you're going to put yourself at risk from bumping up that LDL cholesterol. Uh, but that can be something that you take. You put it in the freezer. It doesn't taste as bad uh, when you take it. It's just a little cold. Uh, but that may be something that you can take. All right. Let's go to uh, Jerry from uh, Bay Springs. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Thanks for your show. Um I just have a quick question. We've had to put off, my wife and I both have had to put off our uh, colonoscopies because of the virus. And right. I 
think there's another alternative test, a blood test or something. Is that right? Yeah, so colonoscopies, of course, are the test that's been used, and it's actually the best test for uh, catching early colon cancer or polyps that would predispose you to getting colon cancer. And uh, it's not pleasant to do the clean out. Uh, you're asleep when you have it done, so that part's not that big a deal. Relatively low risk for most of everybody, uh, but that's the best thing to do because you can see those areas that are abnormal and you can do something about it, whether that's, you know, sort of clipping that polyp off, send it off for, for testing for cancer. So the earlier you catch those kinds of things, the better. If you can't do it, like right now with COVID-19, we're trying to decrease the amount of patients who are coming in and out uh, for those procedures. There are a couple of other things out there that can be useful. One is called a FIT test. So this is an immunochemical test that looks at DNA uh, that we shed in our gut uh, for certain things. And uh, it's pretty useful when you combine it with some other things. So if you're not able to get the colonoscopy, it doesn't take the place of the colonoscopy, but it certainly is a test that you can get. It's pretty easy to do. The kit goes home with you. You put the stool on in that little uh, apparatus. You send it off through the mail and the, the uh, test result goes back to your doctor. And it's fairly easy to do. Uh, not invasive in any way. And when you combine that with also testing the stool for occult blood, so this is blood that you can't see, but it's small amounts of blood that we can test chemically in the stool. When you combine those things together, then you get a pretty good screening tool that, again, doesn't take the place of a colonoscopy, but it, uh, it's certainly something that uh, in, in situations like right now, can at least provide you a little bit more protection on catching things early. So ask your physician about that. You may have to ask your gastroenterologist, uh, but um, those are two things that you can request. Okay, thanks. Sure. Uh, we've got about two minutes left. Let's go to Maxine in Waterford. Good morning, Maxine. Good morning. Thank you um, for calling. I have a question about, I have arthritis, but I have inflammation so bad that I can't hardly walk. It makes me stiff and I can't bend my, I just can't maneuver around like I want to. And I take steroid shots, but it doesn't seem to do a lot of good. But my doctor did give me diclosinac, sodium topical gel, 1%. And it seems right. to help a lot, but I'm, I'm wondering why doesn't the, the steroid shot helps with this inflammation I'm having. Yeah, it sounds like you have osteoarthritis. So uh, osteoarthritis is sort of the wear and tear of the, the cartilage in our joints. It can be multiple places in our body. It's different than the rheumatoid arthritis, which is a big inflammatory autoimmune response. So the things you mentioned can help. Injections of steroids can help for a while, but uh, after a while, you really, it's not going to have a whole lot of effect on there. And you might even have to have a joint replacement if it's a larger larger joint. Um, physical therapy can help too, just with mobility and keeping you active. Uh, but but it, again, if it's osteoarthritis, steroids don't always work and they have a lot of side effects uh, the longer you use them. Even if you're just injecting it into that joint space, you still uh, can absorb a lot of those steroids over time. Uh, you may want to get a consultation from a rheumatologist just to see if there's something else that can be done. 
Uh, or if it is one of those autoimmune cases, uh, there, there may be some other medications just depending on what type it is. But it sounds like it's more of just the wear and tear osteoarthritis. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.